Hello again, listeners. This is David Blakesley welcoming you to the latest episode of The Eclipse Viewer. This is episode 61, or maybe it's season 2, episode 1, or it's (laughs) 60.1, or something like that. I guess we'll go with 61. Yes, this is the 61st episode of The Eclipse Viewer, and we are back uh, after a little bit of a hiatus, if we wondered... As we wondered if we would ever be doing this thing again or not. Last time I was uh, talking to you in this seat, Trevor and I were joined by Matthew Gasteyer as we were finishing up our coverage of the late Ozu set and kind of giving each other little congratulatory pats on the back for finishing up the entire Eclipse series. And then Criterion had to go and spoil it all by releasing another volume, doggone <laughs> it. <laughs> I was so disappointed in them. <laughs> yeah, really. We really figured they were done over and uh, sealed the deal. But nope. No, actually, we're pretty delighted to be back as the Eclipse series continues on, not only with this uh, installment here, episode, uh, Series 45, Claude Autant Lara for Romantic Escapes from Occupied France, but there's even another one on the way, so... We ain't done yet, folks. And uh, Trevor, it's nice to have you back here as we uh, reconnect and pick up the pieces from the uh, Eclipse viewer. How you doing? No, I'm doing great. I, I was just kidding about being disappointed. I, I, <laughs> I have learned over these months without an Eclipse set that I, I, I do get a lot of value of them, even though a lot of this stuff is – there's so much stuff on Filmstruck – I love Filmstruck, but there's something about getting these uh, box sets that that have just a little bit of liner notes and focus in on an aspect of a director's career or something like that that I get a lot of value out of that I, I, I just I guess I don't have the discipline to do it on my own. I'm glad that we're getting this one, that we've got the Ingrid Bergman set coming out because, you know, again, a lot of that's available. I could do this on my own to an extent. This is great, and it gives me another chance to chat about these things with you, David, which I really, really appreciate. I always come away from these conversations with a lot a lot more to think on and consider. Yeah, life's little comforts and uh, picking up uh, a tradition that we, we established over the last several years. You know, the Eclipse Viewer was pretty much my main podcasting uh, effort for, for quite a while, and I have enjoyed it. Obviously, since uh, since that time late last summer, uh, you and I have both kind of gotten into some other new directions in podcasting. I went ahead and used the at least the temporary cessation of the Eclipse Viewer as a as a excuse to launch my own podcast series of Criterion Reflections. Uh, Trevor, you you've also relaunched uh, kind of an old podcast effort. Do you want to talk a little bit about that, just to kind of catch viewers up on what we've been up to since uh, last time we met? Oh, sure. Yeah. I guess I just felt like I had so much more time. (laughs) (laughs) So what I've done, I've gone back to my my book podcast, one that I actually started not too long before you and I joined together on the Eclipse Viewer, and I wrote to you to, to see if if I could help out. Over the years, I that became more sporadic, and certainly for me, the Eclipse Viewer became the central podcasting effort that I had. And not just that, but one of the main efforts. We, we did this every month for a while, going through three, four, five films in order to to come out with these episodes. Uh, when that was gone, I decided to go back to the book podcast, but I did approach it in a way that I think is somewhat inspired from the Eclipse series. So rather than just talk about a book or even talk about an author's full career or something like that, I decided I'm going to talk about three or four books 
in, in each episode by an author or maybe from a particular time or in a particular style and hit it that way. And so my I, I launched my first episode uh, last month and it's called Anita Bruckner's Start in Life because she's an author who started writing novels when she was 52 years old, 53, somewhere around there in the early 80s, and then went on to write basically one a year uh, for three decades. You know, she was very prolific, and yet she never really liked writing literature, it turns out, or writing uh, novels. <laughs> she kind of thought her life before she started that was was her real life, what gave her the most pleasure, and she even says everything that came after that was very dull and uninteresting. So I decided, let's look at the let's look at this transitionary period. Let's look at what she was up to when she did move from, you know, her career in art criticism to a, a side career that became, you know, a, a central part of her life for the last, uh, you know, three decades of her life. And that was a lot of fun, a fun episode. And like I say, I, I mean, I think you can see the connection to the Eclipse viewer. I mean, we, mm-hmm. we've got yeah. early Bergman or something like that. I, I could have called it early Anita Bruckner. <laughs> right. And so you got these sort of distinct phases. You kind of uh, put a little parentheses around them and say, okay, let's kind of take a focused, sustained look at this particular you know phase or era or movement and and uh yeah that's very much what knits the eclipse series together and and i agree with your earlier comment as well where when you have this kind of artifact this little box in your hand with with uh, the packaging the liner notes the photography uh even just the, the the whole sort of summation there's a beginning middle and end of each set uh that sort of you know, it does. It puts a framework around those films. And I know when, when we were nearing the end of the Eclipse Viewer, we were getting some you know, very uh, generous and, and supportive feedback from, from uh, listeners who said, hey, why don't you kind of go back onto Filmstruck and, and kind of do your own curation and put little combinations of films together. It's like, yeah, we, we could do that, but I'm still very happy to let Criterion do that sifting and editorializing (laughs) for me. (laughs) Exactly. Because, you know, as, as much as it would be kind of a fun project and, and I guess in some ways I was doing that with, uh, you know, the first season, if you will, of the Criterion Reflections podcast, putting films together that were released, kind of close together in time uh it's it's still nice to you know keep adding that uh, lineup onto my upper shelf here in my home video library and uh, you know get the latest installment as the uh as the very wise editors and producers of the criterion collection have decided to say let's let's single out this this little cluster of films uh, put them together and uh launch them out there into the world to to let uh, viewers enjoy uh and and sort of revel in this this little collection that we've that we've created uh, to to send a message to 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 kind of uh, underscore a particular moment in cinematic history. So here we are with uh, with like I say series forty five Claude Autant Lara, four romantic escapes from occupied France. So um, this is a, obviously a f- fairly new set. It came out sort of late in January. Uh, here we are in early March. Uh, it's taken us a little while to get this together. Um, obviously, we've both been busy with other projects, but uh, let's just talk a little bit about this set. Uh, what are we getting here? I mean, a lot of us were like, 
Claudotant who? <laughs> what is this all about? Um, these are films that were made during the German occupation of France. Pretty pretty obvious there from the title. Um, and as it also says, they're for romantic escape. So, you know, as I kind of was working my way through this set over the past week or so, I'm thinking about the uh, the wicked melodramas from Gainsborough Pictures, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, Jean Gramillon during the occupation, another director who was doing his thing in a pretty difficult and even at times hostile set of circumstances, uh, toss in a little bit of Sasha Guthrie, uh, even, uh, you know, Cocteau's Beauty and the Beast and some of the, uh, you know, some of the lavish opulence and sort of fantastical uh, aspects of this, of these, of these films. Uh, yeah, they're kind of escapist fare. Uh, but what are some of your kind of impressions of the set as you kind of work through it yourself? Well, so I also thought of the post-war Kurosawa set and mm, the, jeez, mm-hmm. um, oh, the Kenosha set, because yeah, mm-hmm. they are made during war or in post-war in, in Kurosawa's uh, case, but in a time when the United States was essentially looking at every film and determining what could be put out and what couldn't be. So it was really nice to just see what can they do what or what are they willing to do and I, I came away with a very different impression here where it's a little bit more noticeable even than the Grémillon set just how timid and tame you have to make these films to get them by the German censors and how that can almost feel offensive from a perspective mm-hmm, because mm-hmm. you watch these and you're like man are you guys completely oblivious and insensitive to the ter- terrible things that are going on all around you during this time? There, it does, you, you're not even pushing any buttons. At least I dis- discerned no button pushing <laughs> in in these in these four films, right. um, and that can feel a little bit, you know, like oh, that that's that's not what we what we want, you know, we want to see you protesting silently or, or subversively. Uh, and we do get a little bit of that silent protest in Kenosha, for example. And, and that's really fascinating and really courageous. But at the same time, I watch these films and they are really delightful films to a, to a degree. You know, I, I really <laughs> enjoyed them. And I looked at them and I thought, you know, Sometimes, and I, you know, never lived in an occupied country, but sometimes I can see this being a really nice thing. Because certainly at times in my life when I've been into in a little bit of a darker place or something like that, something like this can feel really nice and escapist. It does serve a purpose. It's not the, the noble purpose, perhaps, of, of protesting and that kind of courage, but it does provide that kind of relief and to look at a lot of these are period pieces to an ex, you know to, from some time in in uh, the last hundred years of France's history before they were made to be able to kind of look back and 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 glorify in that just a little bit that that can be a little bit spirit um, up, spirit uplifting and mm-hmm. so I, I I did really enjoy them they, they were fun films uh, for you know, again, sometimes more more than others. <laughs> I, I liked some of sure. them more than others, but I did really enjoy them, and I I didn't think that I would. And there there is that that sense of of folks on there saying, "Oh, these this is just uh, fluff," or especially seeing what the director Claude Attant Laura did after you know he kind of finished making films. 
uh, just became politically repulsive, reprehensible, just uh, ridiculous in his later years. And I wondered if some of that would taint my appreciation for these films. It probably did. I probably am a little bit more down on them, a little bit less accepting of of things I would accept from another director, um, you know, where I can respect at least what I know <laughs> about the director. Mm-hmm. Whereas this this that almost emphasizes the fact that man, you're kind of tone deaf here. You know, you're living at a time and you're 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 almost you almost look exploitative to make a, a bunch of films like this. Uh, what do you, how much money are you making on this stuff? You know, what, how do you, how do you ignore the problems and kind of look at these, these upper class people at a time when the, the worst thing they had to worry about was that they love so-and-so and so-and-so loves someone else or, you know, and all those kind of, uh, strange machinations, um, or at most I can't love so-and-so because they're from a different class than I am. You know, it seems kind of, uh, trivial and trite, uh, from from that perspective, but you know, doggone it, if I look at them um, without kind of that perspective, that lens on, yeah, I, re- I I really liked this set. Yeah, well, boy, there's a lot of issues, a lot of a lot of fascinating tangents to pursue in 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 your summation just there. So let's just talk a little bit about the escapist aspect here. Um, as part of my Criterion Reflections journey through the films of 1969, I had a great chance to talk with Cole Rulane about uh, Maurice Carnet's, um, no, who was, oh, Max, Marcel Ophels, Marcel Ophels, uh, The Sorrow and the Pity, which was a, you know, a documentary, both consisting of original source materials and interviews with survivors and uh, key figures from the German occupation of France in the, you know, early 1940s. And it was really um, a very scathing look back an expose if you will of of lived realities that many viewers were probably aware of but had sought to sort of you know squash out through denial with uh, you know the the complicity of the uh, the mainline french vichy government and many 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 citizens uh, ordinary working class as well as upper class folks of, of french society who basically just kind of rolled over and let the the Nazis come in and do their thing for several years and and to a certain extent even bought into the fascist ideologies um, and so there was a very hard reckoning that took place um, in that film and in its aftermath and it, it resonates to this day and uh, so, so you get into that particular context there of of um, sort of turning a blind eye or in some aspects even going along with some of the the racism the discrimination the oppression the censorship and the and the willful denial if you will of of this outrageous capitulation that took place uh uh, within french society i mean quite notoriously france was the only territory that was occupied by the nazis other than you know germany and maybe a few of the closer in nations but all the other nations that the nazis conquered were basically violently put down after some level of resistance even if it was a even if it was a fairly futile and short-lived resistance you know the poles and the czechs they didn't have nearly the military machine uh, but but the the nazis had to install a kind of an occupation government that's not really how it went down in france uh, they, france had its own dignity and pride and said hey we want to continue sort of living a normal life 
we're just not going to be at war actively <laughs> with, with Germany. And those terms were worked out between the two nations, and yeah, that's how things sat for several years. So in the meantime, you have this whole level of French society, including its film industry, with people who are like, okay, we're going to go along and get along, and we're going to continue to you know, make these entertaining films and live a fairly comfortable, affluent lifestyle and, uh, you know, sort of make the best of the situation. So you're in this very human dilemma, uh, sort of like you, you were saying, Trevor, like is there the noble ideal of protest and dissent and kind of even putting your life on the line? Or are you just kind of, you know, accommodating and living to, to fight and, and survive until a better day dawns. And I, I think that's the very real tension. And so you've got, you know, directors like Clouseau, who was, you know, always an iconoclast, always kind of a, you know, dissident in his own way. He's making films during the occupation uh, that are pretty well regarded. Uh, you you have uh, Carnet, who's in you know, one of the great masters of French cinema. He's making films. Uh, Children of Paradise was made during the occupation, released shortly after. Uh, the Night Visitors, Le Visiteurs de Soie, uh, Grémillon, we've already referenced him. And Claude Autant Lara was one of those other directors who went on to become kind of one of the tastemakers and one of the uh, definitive figures of late 40s and 1950s cinema. And of course, that, that sets the stage for the eventual break away of the new wave and the distancing that they made uh, from the uh, cinema of quality and all of that. So, you know, we're looking at a pretty significant chapter in French filmmaking history. And yet you watch these films and you see the, the soft focus and the opulent costumes and the jewelries and the frivolity and the, you know, the uh, high society shenanigans going on here. And it's like, man, that is so removed from the, uh, you know, the anguish and, and the really awful uh, circumstances that are going on right in the immediate environment of, of when these films were made. And yet societies are vast, complicated things. I mean, think of our own society and, and right now and the wars we have had going on overseas in different nations all over the world, some very publicized, some almost secretive. And yet we're all going about living our lives almost at times oblivious to all of that. Mm -hmm. And yet people are dying and people are suffering and, and crimes are being committed in the name of the country that we rep represent and positively identify with and are proud of. You've, wherever we're, we're at on the political spectrum nowadays. So, you know, it's like I, I have to sort of step back and, and not get too judgmental or condemning towards the people, and yet I I have to also ask of myself the same questions I asked them. It's like, are you paying attention to what's going on around you? And so, yeah, you're right. We have these really fascinating artifacts that are – on the surface and and even a little bit below the surface once you get into them they're they're entertaining they're thought provoking they're very well made i mean Claude Otant Lara is a very skilled filmmaker and he he whisks us right along into these into these plots and these fancies that uh you know uh you know, my wife and I enjoyed them and and we we had a good time with these movies and at the at the at the same time they're they're kind of like a tasty dessert that kind of dissolves on the tongue it's like well that was nice well, what's next, you know, and and so they 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 kind of and how um, to describe that thing? Yeah, <laughs> right, exactly. And, and and how how deep do we get for this particular episode into our analysis and and uh, dissecting of the 
different themes and layers that are are laid out here that's the kind of question yeah the, it, it's a lot of interesting frictions and i i felt them as i watched them i, I and maybe that's, an, again, one of the things I like about having it as an Eclipse set. If I had just stumbled on to, you know, uh, The Marriage of Chiffon or something like that on Filmstruck, I probably wouldn't have been paying that much attention to the year and the situation it was made under. And would have just thought, oh, that was kind of fun. A little Cinderella story almost, you know, but mm-hmm. with a lot of other twists and turns. And I, I, pro- I might would have enjoyed it even more, but it, it wouldn't have confronted me the way that I think I wanted it to. I, I am glad that I watched them from the lens of here's kind of a, a repulsive man later in life. And the, the liner notes get into that. They, it makes no excuses for who he became, the things he said and did. But it does say that's a different man. You know, something must have happened uh, there. He he actually was fairly uh, progressive and open in these early years when he's in his twenties, thirties, and, and the like. And that was an old, embittered person who, yeah, the inexcusable. Um, and I think yeah, but that he that's, went. He went through. Yeah, you know, old time Laura went through a lot of pretty harsh rejection i mean i think yeah that's and so yeah again not to make excuses not to rationalize or water down the the offense of his you know you know far right holocaust denying anti-semitism and probably many other gross offenses that that he committed as he became sort of a spokesman for the national front and uh, probably, I mean, presumably some kind of you know, white supremacist ideology and keeping France pure and all of that kind of garbage. But, uh, you know, it is it is difficult to fully understand the context of what happens in a person's life that leads them to some of those embittered conclusions yeah. in their later years. Yeah, what kind of, what kind of entrenchment happened there that made him just retreat further and further into that ideology. And and I, this is pure speculation. I may even cut this out, but you know, when you're getting attacked so hard from filmmakers on the left and on the far left, I can see someone saying, I am not you. Uh, what other things can I say to be against you? <laughs> you know? And, yeah. And again, right. I, I don't want to make excuses, but I, I, I can see that there are some transformative um, potential in a life that that pushes someone to that end. Uh, that maybe maybe the the liner notes are correct here. Maybe he was a different person back in the '40s than he became in the '80s, and I can see some things that might would have uh, would have affected that. Sure, sure. Uh, but you know, we we he doesn't really get into that kind of posturing or ideology in these films. In fact, one of the interesting oh, yeah, no. liner note aspects is that these are films of apparently scathing social satire. And I'm like, well, you're going to have to make that a little bit more clear for me. Maybe I'm just a little dense, or I'm a little bit dizzied by all the you know the pomp and pageantry of these films. I I certainly don't get you know Jean Renoir's rules of the game or or uh, some of the other kind of, you know, Clouseau, again, to, to bring him in, where the, uh, you know, the savage social commentary is, is very much right up front and center, and and sometimes you're amazed at how did this get past the censors, or you even understand, yeah, this is why the censors, you know, basically tried to shred the rules of the game. They, they recognized the overt, 
you know, threatening commentary and outright mockery that that Renoir had. And I don't know, did how how did that element pick up? Because I think uh, uh, these films uh, are sort of regarded as kind of a, a, a takedown of the social hierarchy. Uh, particularly of the the Belle Epoque France, the the end of the century, late eighteen eighties to early nineteen hundreds era. Uh, the, I think there's maybe what, three films uh, set in that time uh, of of the four here. Did that come through clearly to you? Because I mean, if I sort of squinted a little bit, oh yeah, I guess I can sort of see the you know the the the, the frictions being portrayed here. But a lot of it maybe sailed past me a little bit more than than it might if I taking the time to rewatch these films or dig a little deeper it didn't burn you huh he didn't <laughs> not, not, no no i didn't feel like they're, they're talking about me <laughs> well so we should probably make it clear the the writer of the liner notes is nicholas elliott and certainly i got a lot from them i don't i don't mean to to sound critical because i i appreciated the the efforts to contextualize these films that he's obviously uh, been with a lot more than i have um but yeah that kind of sailed past me too or i get it as much as i did when i was young and uh, to bring it up again you know watched cinderella yeah there's some class issues there but that is not the point of the of of it and that's not the thing you walk away from you you walk away from it with the romantic fairy tale like uh, aspect and i definitely can see it more in in deuce the third film in the set uh because that one ends with some flames, <laughs> you know, there's, yeah, there's some yeah, problems yeah. there and, uh, and they actually overtly comment on, you know, Hey, you know what? My, 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 I, I know people are breaking down some of these barriers. You and I can run off and, and be together. You know, the, the noble woman says to the, to the working man. Um, and then it does go into some of the forces that, that are against that. But, you know, it, it felt to me pretty much the same as a, a lot of films do when they're when they're dealing with that. It's it's a barrier to love more than it is um, something that's being explored in depth or really critiqued. It's just another barrier. And and you know, I I, I liked it for that, but I, I certainly didn't didn't walk away from it with that. My 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 walk away from most of these films was. That was that was really fun, you know. I, I really like some of the actors. I really mm-hmm. like some mm-hmm. of the some of the photography. I really like some of the technique. I really like seeing Jacques Tati <laughs> at this age, yeah, do, doing yeah. doing some work and having fun, uh, much more than I thought. Well, you know, what's going to happen between this this girl and her uh, her you know working class uh, boy, you know, anything like that. And isn't it too right. bad society set up that way? And maybe, maybe we, you know, we're we're in a different era that those things aren't as sensitive. You know, if this were our era, maybe we would be like, oh wow, yeah, 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 <laughs> you know, and really get behind it or something like that. But like I say, for me, I, I think I'm kind of with you that that played a much uh, a lesser part to the whole thing. Mm. Yeah, yeah, I didn't, I didn't feel I was really getting in touch with the soul of an era like another sort of Bella Polk film uh, Cascador uh, have you seen that one that's a Simone Signore it's it's one of those kind of you know semi obscure dvd only titles but that and and uh Serge Reggiani I think is the is the main the male actor's lead in that and that's a very 
kind of gut-wrenching, compelling, tragic type of film that really sucks you in and makes you really um, lament the the loss of an era as they're looking back. And that was, I think, in the early 1950s that film came out. And so it, they're looking back to a very similar time in French history and really agonizing over the fact that there was this really special thing happening back then and, uh, you know, reality just couldn't sustain the delicate balance of, of that particular time and place. These films kind of are throwbacks in the same way, but they they feel very much more escapist. I, I don't want to sound denigrating, but sort of in the way that, you know, Hallmark movies kind of throw out the old costumes and the kind of the, the bric-a-brac of a certain era and give you that feeling, but it doesn't feel like you're really there in the same no, way, you know? Uh, that, that brings me to something. Um, see if this, if this lines up with what you're saying. So uh, I don't know if you've read too much uh, from the author Stefan Zweig. He, he became more well known yeah. when mm-hmm. uh, when Grand Budapest Hotel came out, and I wish that I wish that that, that gusto <laughs> were, were continuing. I don't know if it is. Sure. Um, yeah. But he you know he was writing just fantastic, fun, uh, compelling romances and melodramas in the 1920s and early 1930s i mean these are these are some really fantastic uh stories about this time when it felt like he was king of the world and that the world was not going to change but when the world did start to change you see a change in his writing and in what he's about because there's a lot more lamenting and there's a lot more um fear a lot more existential crisis uh, coming out onto the page and a lot more longing and regret for didn't we didn't understand what we had and maybe it was never there in the first place you know because if it was really there if this noble world was really there we wouldn't find ourselves here uh, a decade later less than a decade later where obviously there was something going on because our people are are dying being killed being hunted you know and he eventually committed suicide and you right, can, you can right. kind of see this transition in his work and so it becomes a, a pretty fascinating story and development whereas this coming during the war feels you you feel the the longing but in kind of a non-accepting way like this is still Paris? No, you know, <laughs> this is not Paris anymore. It never will be this again. Um, but this doesn't have any any tincture of awareness of that, even though it should be there in some way. And and you know, again, I get that it, why it's not there. That's not the goal of these movies. And if it were there, it probably they wouldn't have been made. You know, something would have happened to them along the way. Uh, these are these are almost meant to be oblivious to the hurdles and say, yeah, there's France and there still is France. This is all right. Everything is all fine and dandy. Um, so anyway, yeah, I, don't know that kind of, of a, yeah. I don't know if that makes any sense or lines up with what you were saying about yeah. these don't feel. I don't right. Know, well, it's there. it's the difference between kind of a nostalgic reminder of a simpler, happier time when when life was just straightforward and people said what they meant versus, you know, there's we're going to back to this era and recognize that you know some of the delusion and denial and deception that our paradise was based on. It's it's kind of wrestling with the, the darker forces that underlied this privilege versus just 
kind of reminiscing about how much better things used to be. And I think you get a little bit of that in some of the, you know, to kind of maybe get into the films themselves, like Le Merge de Chiffon, you, you have kind of the pageantry of the old uh, military order and even even really uh, love letters as well. Uh, you know, the, the kind of... Uh, reminiscence of the old uh, imperial uh, regime and and some of the rivalries, of course, that took place. But there's kind of a, a sanitizing of the whole thing that the, the the conflicts don't seem really quite as crucial. Yes, people get upset and angry and you know indignant and all, but it's it's not like the struggle is as real in some of these films. So. Yeah, but but if you if you want to fill in the gaps, if you've studied your French history, or you want to get into sort of the you know class dynamics and tensions, you, you can fill that in, and I guess that perhaps that makes the satire a little bit more scathing or a little bit more incisive. And so, you know, these these are films that that are they're not exa- well, they're certainly not shallow. They're not they're not just you know trinkets and you know window dressing. Yeah, but, uh, yeah, but honestly, you know, you brought up the Gainsborough melodramas. Mm-hmm. Yeah, these yeah. have a lot more going on, I think, than those do. And I I love those. Those are so fun. Oh yeah, right, right, and and those are those are kind of over the top fun, kind of exaggerated silliness. Uh, you know, the Wicked Lady and all of that. You know, the Man in Gray. The, the, you know, the, and and I guess that's the thing. You know, this that was English wartime escapism. You know, for for the ladies who are stuck on the home front while their men are off fighting the war. Uh, here's some uh, bodice rippers that'll kind of <laughs> take you away. Yeah, you know? made at the so, same yeah, time as these, the exact exactly. same time. Right. So, and that's that's just another little side benefit of the Eclipse series. You really, you know, you've got Japan, you've got France, you've got England. Uh, you know, just looking at what was happening in these different societies as world war was roiling all around them. So that's a pretty good sense. Well, one other kind of main feature we, we need to discuss before we maybe get into a, some brief comments about the individual films themselves is uh, the the character, the figure of Odette Joyeux. She is the centerpiece, really, besides the director himself, but she is the the lead female character and, and uh, actor in each of these films. Um, it's, it's quite fascinating. She was a woman in her late 20s, even I think turned 30 by the time the last film was released. Yeah, I, just to, it, to put I, it into context, yeah. I think in 1942, when, mm-hmm. or at least when, when she filmed the first one in this, The Marriage of Chiffon, she was 26. And okay, then so, by the yeah. end, it's 1946. So you're right. I think she's in her 30, very early yeah. 30s. But she's playing a teenager in three of the four films. She's a petite woman. <laughs> yeah. She's got big eyes. She's got an expressive face, and and she's 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 very charming, very capable. Uh, but still, quite often I felt like she's a twenty-something year old woman doing an imitation of a teenager. You know, um, so there's a little bit of that hurdle that one has to get past, I suppose. If you're if you're gonna, you know. Let let that be an issue, and of course, the men that she's involved with are typically more than twice her age, which is another little uh, relic of the time and and of the social structures of what was uh, perhaps expected of young women of a certain class, anyway. So, uh, you know, I, I enjoyed her performances. I certainly became a much uh, greater, uh, you know, appreciative of, of her of her talents and of her ability to sort of be the focal point of, of four films in a row. I guess she was considered one of the, you know, significant uh, female actors of her day in France. Uh, oh, what are your impressions of her work? 
I I don't think I'd ever seen her or really know, known about her. I notice in Criterion they do have her in the cast of Max Ophel's La Ronde, which I, I, I like that film quite a bit, but mm-hmm. but I don't remember her in it, and I didn't go back and rewatch it. I don't think she had a significant role, so this was really my introduction to her. And yeah, I really, really enjoyed her. I agree 100%. She is not a 16-year-old, um, doesn't act like one, at least no, none that I know. And There's moments where she sort of bobs her head around and puts her hands behind her back, and she's the little coquette, you know. Mm-hmm. So, like I say, she's kind of impersonating what a, a a real teenager might be like at that time. But it's 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 really all in fun, is, is yeah. how it felt to me. Well, and she, and, and to an extent, I'm I'm definitely okay with it because there's there's a lot more gravity to her. You know, she's someone who's a little bit more aware, I think. And you can see that coming out in the character she's playing, which is nice because it gives a little bit of, of, of an idea of, you know, they might not always be able to express it, but, you know, teenagers are feeling some of these things. They might not be as articulate or as knowing and self-aware as um, Odette Joyeuse's uh, Im- impersonation of a teenager is, but... You see her going through quite a bit in these stories, you know, in, in the first one, she's dealing with two suitors and, and what to do about that and all the, all of the frustration and excitement that that might bring. And, you know, it's, it's, it's nice, but, but probably the best role for her was in Love Letters, where she's already a widow, you know, a young widow, but that makes more sense. She's a little bit more aware and a little bit more world uh, not weary. She doesn't look weary, but a little bit more uh, understanding and, uh, well, I guess I'll just say for the fiftieth time, self-aware than yeah, than yeah. the other characters, and or than than you would think any of the teenagers would be in these situations. I mean, even especially in the last one, Sylvie and the Phantom, or in the Ghost, in in that one, they kind of play with her, just being in love with this old romantic story. But it just it doesn't quite fit, and and you're right. By that time, she's thirty year old playing a sixteen year old. But I and still, a very familiar face at that point. Too. Yeah, I mean, I, I I'm sure they were trying to maximize her star value. I mean, you can tell the way that she's framed here, the way she's featured on the posters for the films. You know, she was considered a big box office draw, and again, for a nation. You know, at at well, not really at war in the same sense that other nations were at war, but but certainly under occupation, subject to censorship, you know, dealing with rations and deprivations. I'm sure her her familiar face was just kind of a nice, uh, you know, nice getaway for a couple hours, you know, and 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 so they're they're kind of milking that for all it's worth, but it does really strain credulity after a while. She's just, yeah. yeah. And, and and why does she have to be cast in such a diminutive teenager role? I mean, yeah, as you said, in, in Love Letters, she's very capable of holding her own, and I, I really like that character. She's she's savvy. She's got her own little, you know, angle for, you know, survival and for, for kind of making the most of, of her situation she's she's a merry widow she's definitely you know kind of having a little bit of fun with with this uh, disruptive role that uh, life has cast her into yeah there's the the part at the beginning where she says that she was married for just a few months and then became a widow and has been that way for three years and then the man she's talking to goes oh a few months of joy and three years of 
of sadness, and she says, of regret. Uh, regret. She goes, no, a few months of regret and three years of joy and freedom right. and all that kind of stuff. Right. So, I'm rich. I'm set up. Everything's <laughs> yeah. good. <laughs> What's not to like, right? Yeah. So, so um, little things like that definitely made me like her. I liked her from the moment that we get to know her. Um, when oh, yeah, she meets yeah. the, the colonel in the rainy streets, it's a beautiful shot at the very beginning of the marriage of Chiffon. I I liked her from that moment when he, you know, he's being a little deceptive and in a way that, you know, the more that the Me Too movement goes on that you're like, oh, come on, man, don't do that. You cannot, <laughs> you cannot tease her this way yeah. and steal her shoe. Right. That's just wrong. And, you know, but, but trying to kind of strip that away and just look at it from these two getting to know each other for the first time in the dark and kind of afraid to go under a streetlight because then she'll see how old he is and he'll see how young she is. I mean, that was just kind of fun and charming. And she was a big part of that because she's, she's quick. She, she's got, she's got presence that you can feel, you know, from, from the get go. And, her arguments with with her mom and the way that the servants love her and will will basically even go against their their employers in order to help her all that i may it makes sense because she's such a she's a presence and and that's from her from odette joyeux and not necessarily from chiffon uh, because that presence seems to to go through every single one of these films it's not a film here where she takes a you know a back seat and and looks like she's not really she's always the center you know there can be 20 yep. other people in the screen she's you're watching what she's doing well and she's even paired up with some other really beautiful classically beautiful french actresses of her own era who are taller and have a little bit more of that sort of uh, you know classical elegance and sexiness to him and she's you know she's a little bit of a waif uh, but but she's she's spunky she's energized you know and and there's something really vital about just her her presence and her persona you know she's you know she's not you know beautiful in a sense of a stunner by you know at least by contemporary standards but she's you know she's she's got a great gaze she's got tremendous poise um a self-assurance in a in a small uh, petite persona and and yeah th- there is something really likable you y- you root for her because you know that kind of from the get-go there's kind of a stacking of the odds against her whether it's the way the social order sort of pushes her into a certain place or the fact that she's going to be kind of seen as a sort of a you know, a, a trifle of a character because she is small. She is petite. She is, uh, you know, very feminine and and presumably, especially in this kind of more patriarchal order, kind of the weak and fragile one. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> she she is anything but you know. And so yeah, there you definitely kind of get pulled in alongside her, and and you you know you root for her and and that's a and and again that's a very nice through line to connect these four films so you know so we're you know 40 odd minutes into our conversation well maybe we should just take a few minutes and i really don't feel like it would be proper for us to you know analyze and and uh you know kind of uh diagram out each film because these plots tend to get pretty convoluted and uh we would you know, botch it i think we, we would, yeah right right we would make and them we'd no spend fun <laughs> right we, we'd spend a lot of time trying to backtrack and correct ourselves because they they do kind of 
you know, swirl and twirl around us. Uh, but let's just maybe just, you know, maybe do quick capsule summaries of each one. So the marriage of Chiffon, is, as you said a couple times now, Trevor, is a bit of a Cinderella story. You've got the, the old colonel, uh, uh, lieutenant colonel, I guess is his title. And, and one of the things that struck me is the visual similarities between him and Marshal Patan, the, uh, the, the, the head of the Vichy government during those war years with that kind of, uh, you know, erect bearing, the little cap with its little bill. And and mm-hmm. it was very much looked like Marshal Patin's uniform, which he was very, you know, sure to put on display. You know, Marshal Patin, the Vichy leader, was was a great hero of World War One and, and uh, you know, quite revered and, and the ideal figurehead to rally French, French patriots and traditionalists behind the new regime um, that, of course, again, was working in close proximity and, and uh, you know, complicity with the, with the Nazis. They kind of said, we'll, we'll run things in a way that won't disrupt your plans or present any kind of a threat. And, and I wondered I, I at the coincidence, if you will, of, of that of that lieutenant colonel character who again is is very patriarchal very sympathetic you know he's he's a man who's undeniably attracted to the younger woman but realizes you know his moment has passed and and even though he feels that same impulse of of attraction and desire he's not he's going to be a gentleman he's not going to let himself go there he's actually going to kind of turn her away towards uh you know the, the man that he knows she really loves and uh you know that that's her was it her stepfather's brother i guess it's a step uncle mark who's a mm-hmm. kind of a semi successful inventor and that's another really fascinating thing you're kind of at this dawn of the age of uh the automobile and the aeroplane <laughs> that was kind of a fun little subtext of the film yeah so i i, I liked it and i liked the filmmaking i liked the it, I've I've seen it brought up, and you know we I just mentioned Max Ophels with uh, La Ronde. I see a little bit of that in here because of the depiction of this period in French history, but also because of the facility with the camera. It's not it's not quite as lavish and sweeping as Ophels, but like I say, that first shot of those two coming together in the rain, that's just it was, it was lovely and. And it's a fun film. It's a fun film with um, with watching her dealing with the frustrations of of what her parents expect, what's good for her, what she loves, and you know that's that's about it though for me. <laughs> I think it, it was <laughs> it was it was good. I, I'll I'll actually probably watch this one again um, in the in the nearer future with people because it's just one of those kind of. Uh, easy to 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 go through you know on a friday night when everyone's kind of trying to wind Mm -hmm. down from from a week of work this is a good one to get through i think yeah yeah and and uh did i do you have any reaction to the what what was that old car that they were driving around and and i mean to me those those old contraptions were really oh yeah quite fascinating i I was like i wonder what happened to that little uh yeah, automobile <laughs> that, that that little buggy thing i mean it's just it's such a cool little device yeah, a, a time before the yeah, form yeah. of what we think an automobile should look like was uh kind yeah, of yeah. solidified into what we have today you get this, this these funky things i actually liked that about each of the movies not not that all of them go into the technology but they they do kind of uh, they have some specific things that let you feel that this is this is the past this is not mm-hmm. this mm-hmm. is not even 1940s this is this is from another era 
era. You've got the uh, Eiffel Tower halfway in construction and Deuce and things like that yep. that just really, yeah. really kind of give you this moment of that doesn't pull you out of the film. I mean, maybe a little bit, but more emphasizes this other era, a different mm-hmm. era. And, and maybe that's part of the escape. This is not now. These are not the problems we're dealing with now. Here's some obvious right. cues that this is a different time. And isn't that fun? You know, the, the way that things used to be. Sure. Well, let's talk about Letra de More, or Love Letters. That's easier to pronounce. Um, this is a kind of a classic, you know, mistaken identity mix-up type of thing. In fact, there's a, there's a fair amount of that you know, mistaken identity thing going through several of these films. Um, but Letters de More is basically uh, a little bit of a scandal play. Um, uh, a young woman has agreed to sort of be the recipient of, of love letters from a friend of hers. Uh, those letters get mixed up. Uh, there's some interesting courtroom stuff. <laughs> I guess I'll go ahead, Ness, for some of your response to that. Uh, uh, thinking about our recent uh, conversation I, about I, young. I probably did more and, and had more to say about it in Young Mr. Lincoln than, Mr. I, Lincoln. than I do here. Okay. Other than the fact that I, I, I really yeah. like the actor. Um, he stood out to me in, in this one. Is it Francois Perrier? Yeah, yeah I believe so. He he was kind of the the lights going on for me in this film. Uh, already, we'd already come to know Odette Joyeux and and liked her. And he, and as we said earlier, here she's our, she's a stronger character, a little bit more um, in control and and knowing. And and then we've got this young uh, man, this young attorney who who is falling in love with her, and he's just interesting. I kept on, I couldn't figure out if I thought that he was kind of a goofy-looking fella who didn't suit the role. And then there are moments where I'm like, no, he totally does. He's He's got yes. he's got that kind of uh, that persona that just plays with you and your expectations of who he is, how strong he is, how much he can actually win her heart, um, and, and all of that. This, this one, for me, was, was a, fun, a fun story, mostly because of how off the wall and confusing it got it was fun to try and and patch it all together and and, you know i i liked the ending i won't get into it but i i it's so silly but i I liked the final flourish (laughs) yeah this this had some farcical elements to it um i think i think that lead actor could be a pretty persuasive leading man nowadays you know i I yeah. think of what was it, Timothy Chalamet, the guy who's in Call Me by Your Name and, and uh Lady Bird and several other films. Uh I think there's even some visual similarities. Obviously the hairstyles have changed a little bit there, but but the basic features and, and, and poison presence, you know, kind of an interesting little through line there. Um He's the hedgehog, right? And and so uh, yeah, there's there's just uh, there is uh, there's just some very fun elements of of mix-ups and and deceptions and and some parlor games in terms of uh, you know the 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 letter caught in the fire and and uh, you know just 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 some very interesting little uh, you know crossplay between uh, you know different characters. But you're right. It's it's a it's a bit of a frothy a frolic there. Kind of a just a fun movie that it leaves you uh, amused and and uh, there's some little dancing and and uh, ballroom drama and all that kind of stuff going on there. So it, yeah, a very very fun. It was probably as far as the funness value, my favorite mm-hmm. of the set. I I, I, I would agree. I yeah. thought this, that this I, is one. Oh, go ahead. Sorry. Well, I, you're right. It, it just hits all those notes. Just a just a very enjoyable, uh, 
escapade. Yeah, I thought that I thought that Sylvia and the Phantom was more my my cup of tea with with, and we'll get into that in a minute. But yeah, this one this one ultimately probably gave me the most pleasure. Yeah, um, and then Deuce. This is this is the more the tragic, uh, maybe more in in some cir- circles at least more the traditional, you know, kind of bleak French, uh, you know. Uh, not not tearjerker that's not really the word i'm looking for but but you know it kind of leaves you with a little bit of that bitter aftertaste of oh isn't life just so tragic and futile and so <laughs> yeah you know and 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 there's certainly that that theme that runs through so much of especially 1930s french cinema and of course i know you and i and aaron west and and and, and many others are scott and i are all big fans of that kind of more you know bittersweet era where uh, we're just kind of left shaking our heads at the the tragedy and the sorrow of it all you know and and so deuce basically goes down that road because you've got again some some forbidden relationships some people yearning with with uh loves and desires that are really not destined to to meet a happy ending here uh, it's a much darker tone uh you you do have some interesting technology the the elevator mm-hmm. <laughs> and the and the kind of you know uh the, the the new the new progress and prosperity of of this family and yet just how kind of how entrenched against themselves they are across the generations there's this this real you know uh, harshness that uh kind of just undermines any any hope of a of a of a brighter happier day uh, at the end of this of this little sojourn that we're on with these characters yeah i think as far as things to chew on this is the film of the set and probably the most famous and uh most well regarded i'm thinking based on what i've seen i mean i did, I did not know who this director was really uh, or mm-hmm. at least that he was a director until this was announced and so this is coming just purely anecdotally and from what i've seen since but it seems like this one has the most acclaim is considered you know a masterpiece in some circles and i think it's even on one of the recent they shoot pictures don't they uh 1000 best films lists from you know uh, i don't know if you saw that can you can you corroborate my claim there i can't but maybe we'll put a link to that in the liner notes there if it's uh, true show notes yeah okay sure i think it is i think i saw that it was on there um and i think i think it has all the elements beautiful set designs great performances you know for uh they shoot pictures type of uh ranking i think it has some of those darker tragical notes you know which I, I those are the kind of films that at least with a certain type of viewer they they tend to resonate they kind of sink in a little bit deeper than these you know fluffy uh you know uh, escapist fantasies well and almost uh, to contrast with the the fluffy escapist of i'd say the each of the other three have this one feels a lot more claustrophobic and a lot more tight and and reined in in ways the others just don't Uh, and i think it starts from the very opening scene where you're obviously looking at a miniature it can't be anything else because you know the eiffel tower is built by 1943 and yet there we see it 
uh, half, you know, not even halfway, kind of just the pedestal, the very base of it right. is, is built up. And yeah, it looks Which puts like you to this very particular moment in mm-hmm. time. And and I love those miniatures. I, I, yeah, I, they, I, they look great. I would great. love to see more of that kind of thing. <laughs> but the way that it works to worked for me was it's obviously a miniature, but it starts to pan, and apparently they've put it like on a roof somewhere or, or something because as they pan using some my, some great film technique, you do start seeing in windows, you know, it mm-hmm. becomes a little more depth. And to me, that just made the whole world feel like a miniature. It made it feel like, like some enclosed world. It's snowing and it, it, it's just, it's much more claustrophobic that way for me. But in, in a, in an interestingly, comfortable right, way um you're starting from the outside you're zooming in mm-hmm. and once you're in you never get out exactly <laughs> you know, kind of yep. like uh you're you're kind of in this i think the one of the liner notes talks about a snow globe you know you're kind yeah, of in this yeah. locked environment uh rene claire in his uh you know, early 30s film under the roofs of paris used a very similar technique and so this is again and, and and i'm sure that film was revered as a bit of a classic and so we're kind of having a little bit of a throwback even to an earlier cinematic tradition in that opening scene here you know some 10 years or maybe a dozen years later so uh no i i really enjoyed this film and this is probably the one that i would like to revisit and study a little bit more in depth uh, but again i think there, there are, these are all films that really do stand you know stand up under a second watch i just haven't quite had the time to do that <laughs> so, yeah and, and that and yeah. i guess for the listeners i mean we might as well admit it that for me that's one of the reasons i'm a little more vague in the analysis because i watched them mm-hmm. um, when the when the set arrived as it came out and didn't have a chance to rewatch them and they do kind of start to float together a little bit <laughs> you know you've got mm-hmm. the same star mm-hmm. actress you've got the same uh kind of whirly twirly settings and all that right right. yeah so Mm -hmm. so i think that's part of it but i'm excited to go and watch it and and the ones that stand out i've mentioned the things that do stand out deuce is certainly one that stands out it's it's different from all the others it it, it's uh it stands out in relief because uh there's so much about it that is different and and so much that's the same (laughs) you know you still got uh odette joyeux playing a very young girl who who loves someone that she probably shouldn't, uh, at least based on the morals of the time, but is given a little bit of license to uh, by her her father, who is in love with her governess, and mm-hmm, that's mm-hmm. kind of crossing some boundaries, and so it emboldens her to to pursue her own uh, love interest with the the manager of the estate. Yeah, and it, this kind of brought to mind, this particular film brought to mind the Julien de Vivier in the 30s set, which also has some pretty twisted characters <laughs> roaming around and doing uh, you know, some pretty depraved things. And so, yeah, if you, if you want a little bit more of that uh, you know, French uh, bleakness, uh, th- th- this this is the, the film in the set that's going to kind of deliver a, a, a fresh dose of that type of thing not not the next one huh you don't <laughs> no 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 sylvia and the but the sylvia and the phantom i mean this is another i mean to me this is a historically significant film because it really is it's the feature debut of jacques Tati uh, as he transitioned from be, being a kind of a live stage performer a, a cabaret entertainer and and uh, began really what is to me still one of the most legendary awesome fantastical careers in all of cinema just you know, he made a 
relative handful of films, but so great, so inimitable, so so one of a kind, even as he built on traditions of you know, characters like Chaplin and Keaton and all of that. But, uh, you know, a very, very prominent role. He wasn't a lead. He was really a supporting role and pretty low on the credits list, as a matter of fact. But Sylvie and LaFanto. Except Lefanto, at the very yeah, beginning, yeah. where his, you know, yeah. every name is kind of going through that Rolodex uh, right, technique right. That, that he's been doing in these is the cast list and that goes yep. away and then you see on, in the only name on the screen Jacques Tati yeah I, I, I think he was a known character there's also uh, Sylvia Renault who's in um, Love Letters she she was uh, kind of at the end of the credits but she was also in uh, Clouseau's Quai de, de Refeve, uh a post-war film but you know she's another pretty significant lead female actor so it seemed like their their way of doing credits was to kind of backload the, the end of the line <laughs> there with with some significant names and I think again though even though this is Tati's debut uh, he really brings the film to a different level he really makes it stand out along with the special effects that you know showcase him so so brilliantly yeah that, so i didn't know it was tati until i sat down to watch it oh okay and so yeah. that was a really fun discovery for me because mm-hmm. it, it definitely is the old tati you know this isn't monsieur hulot this is the tati from all the shorts that we get in that great criterion set the young right. skinny is skinny skinny tall lanky yeah tati. yeah and, and and rather handsome too i yeah. mean he you know he yeah i mean we're used to seeing him as an old man and it's not like he's ugly or grotesque or anything like that but here he really did have kind of a, a nice poise and bearing and, and appearance to himself even though most of the time well, he's always in this kind of weirdly kind of faded <laughs> Look, brightly lit come on you know. he's got to be the white hunter i mean he's got to <laughs> be right. suave and uh, powerful enough to to win women across the era <laughs> across the ages and he's a ghost right exactly so he's he's not going to just be standing there like a another dude on the, on the floor there's always going to be this shroud of special effects lighting and all of that but uh, sylvia and the phantom is another uh, a little bit of a supernaturally tinged a romantic farce there uh, a young woman again played by the 30 year old odette joyeux is now once again a teenager 16 16 we can be specific she's 16 16. exactly (laughs) yeah yeah and and she's fallen hopelessly in love with the image on a painting (laughs) it's just kind of like oh really now (laughs) um but but yeah the 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 basic story here is that uh she's kind of uh lost in her little girl's world this little romantic uh, uh concoction that she's dreamed up here that he's the man of her dreams uh, but the uh, the estate's fallen on some hard times, and I guess they have to sell this painting. Oh man! And, uh, yeah, uh, yeah. Uh, that was so <laughs> funny in a ridiculous way to be. Yeah. Everybody knows she's going to be upset when they sell this painting. They're wanting to hide it from her. They're being so delicate. It is like they're taking away her lover or her pet. You know? Yeah, yeah. And, and right, they, they right. know that. And and you know this is the man the white hunter the Jacques Tati character who fell in love with her grandma and was her grandma's great love even though they never were married or anything like that he ended up dying in a duel and so she just has this massive romantic image of that story and has adopted it completely as her own and everyone seems to be okay with that you know it's too bad we have to sell this painting this is our daughter's 
life. <laughs> it's, it's yeah, we're we're basically going to shoot her puppy out by the garage. Yes, know, to make try some to money. tell her everything's okay. Yeah, <laughs> and he yeah, even so, says so, if we we she would rather we sold the whole castle than sold the painting. But we're gonna sell it anyway. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Know. So it, it's it's kind of preposterous, and 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 you you know you basically just have to plunge in both feet, you know, forward because otherwise this whole thing just kind of falls apart. But it's not all that difficult. They're really not asking you to you know suspend disbelief to a painful extent. But yeah, this that's basically a little bit of a haunted house type of thing, and and uh, again, it's it's. The production values and the just the the whimsical uh, you know pleasures of it are really what set it apart. And again, you know, as a as a pretty diehard Jacques Tati fan, I was just really delighted to have this new you know installment, if you will, of the uh, you know the complete Jacques Tati mm-hmm. with a little new supplement thrown on there of him as a performer uh, uh, the youngest we'll probably ever see him unless there's some other footage out there of well, his cabaret act or something like that one thing i will say is i was looking around and i didn't have time sure. to confirm this someone okay. mentions that he's actually also in deuce in a very minor spot oh so okay well you know i i, I certainly missed it and I didn't see it everywhere, and he's not in the credits for Deuce or anything like that. Right. I tried to do an image search, and no one posted an image of him in Deuce. So, you know, a little bit of investigative work. There may be that we did see okay. him a little younger, but certainly this is this is where he comes out. I mean, we know who he is. Mm-hmm. You, you you can see him throughout the film. He's he's a major part of it. Yeah. So yeah, but really, I mean, I I enjoyed it again. I. I don't feel the need to get into the the nitty gritty of the details. We've kind of summarized the highlights there. Um, I don't know any any other particular bits that stood out to you or that that come to mind. Just the technique that apparently they used to film Tati as a ghost. I, yeah, I don't. It's really well done. It is. It's, it's it's quite persuasive for a film of this era. With you know, it's, it's all camera effects and double exposures and lighting and things of that yeah sort. and one of the techniques that they talk about in the liner notes is they actually built like mirror sets and had tati on the other side of the room basically on a set that was the same as the one that the actors that you can see were on and they used glass and mirrors and lights to shine him over so that when they filmed the other side as he's walking up the stairs behind them it looks like he's on the same set. That's pretty fascinating right. to me. I... Right. That's that's the thing. It's like he's he's very clearly interacting with characters. He's putting you know, hand uh, one of the stills there in the in the uh, you know the uh, menus there is his hand over Odette Joyeux's mouth and it and and he rises through the floorboards and he you know the you know he's running through a wall or a door but the the ghost sheet that he's wearing gets left behind and it's very (laughs) very well done he's even got a little ghost dog with him as well that kind of you know has has some fun with it so yeah it's 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 extremely clever very well executed the the sets are enormous and and wonderful these these great gothic arches and staircases i mean that's another thing i mean if you just really want to get into costumery and set design and ornate you know environments 
this these films, all four of them, just have it in spades. It's it's just incredibly uh, sumptuous visual feast here. Even though these are black and white mm-hmm. films, even though this is DVD, uh, some of the restorations aren't really as complete as maybe we'd like them to be. There's still going to be little flicks of damage and you know the occasional you know uh, fragmentary cell or something of that sort. But but really the the, the transfers are very nice and the uh, the eye candy is is you know uh, richly displayed and and spread throughout all four of the films. Yeah, I agree. I I really did enjoy them. The and th- I I kept on thinking why. What's different about these than about some of the films that we revere as absolute masterpieces from the same or similar era? You know, the Ophels that have... Th- these reminded me of Ophels quite a bit with all the set and the, mm-hmm. The, mm-hmm. Uh, the those camera abilities. And the Carnets and the, you know, so many of those films from the same area. Why do these have a lesser reputation than those? And I agree with that. And I'm, I guess, you know, those to me just are a little more provocative on, on, on many, many, many different levels. But I'm mm-hmm. absolutely okay that I watched a few, say, mid-range, well-done movies. Kind of B-plus yeah, movies, really, if you want to call them that. I right. really enjoyed them and got a lot from them to the point where, just like the Gainsborough melodramas, I'm going to watch them again and again through my life just because sure. they, sure. they're now a pleasant memory, too. You know, there's there are people here I want to revisit. There are, it, And it is simpler. It's a, it's a simpler idea of, of what we all go through during the day. And, you know, that, that can just be very nice to seep into. Yeah, I think I think the difference between like these films and like a Children of Paradise. I mean, you know, Children of Paradise just is so ambitious. It's 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 a magnificent spectacle, and it's it's a little bit more of a you know a, a more heartfelt, tragical era of French history. Um, so you know, the stakes are higher in some of those films. I think, yeah, yeah. As, far as as camera work, you know, Ophel's is definitely more ostentatious and and more daring i mean he he has crazy shots you know but he pulls them off the execution is just remarkable in what he's able to do so otan lara is you know as as the old cliche goes he's the cinema of quality these are these are films of of great you know a craftsmanship and and uh, a very solid delivery uh there's a lot of variety there's a lot of delight uh there's there's definitely so much to enjoy in these films and yet he's not he's not you know shooting for the stars here he's not he's not trying to create an all-time landmark masterpiece of film uh, he's just really presenting something that uh, is is well done uh, that is diverting that is amusing that is uh, you know unique and intelligent and and there's enough variety these films are certainly not formulaic they they there are some certainly some similarities, but there's there's also diversions and and uh, differences that that make them each distinguishable from each other when you get down into it. So, yeah, um, this to me is a very uh, perfect uh, example of what the Eclipse series is nowadays. You know, we're not really looking to create another late Ozu type of set, <laughs> or even early Bergman, yeah. or or some of the other you know. Uh, tow, you know, towering directors of, of le- lesser works. I think that's kind of where the Eclipse series began. But now it's at a place where it's bringing the spotlight on um, 
you know, on, on directors of, of lesser renown, but who still deserve their time in the spotlight. Of course, the next set will be one of the greatest female actors of all time. Might, might change yeah. your, uh, the perspective <laughs> there, I guess. Huh? <laughs> well, but, but, you know, but, but by emphasizing her early Swedish work, you know, those are films that, I mean, maybe Intermezzo could be a double feature with its uh, Hollywood counterpart version, but those films are not going to sustain a standalone release. Uh, you know, they may or may not be on Filmstruck. I'm not sure at the moment. I think all four of these films, as well as another uh, Otant Laura film, are on Filmstruck currently. I can talk a little bit about that one in a the second. But, you know. Yeah. Yes, exactly. And, and and well, let's just do that now since it's been brought up. So, have you had a chance to watch that or not? No, no, but I Oh, okay. I, I have heard again all of this anecdotally. <laughs> I've heard yeah, a lot sure, of things. Sure, sure. Okay. But that that's kind yeah. of where it's at. You know, that's that's the one people are hoping gets a Blu-ray release. It's it's a very interesting film. I I watched it the other night. I you know, um part I mean, it starts off really intriguing it's 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 a very dark wicked comedy it's about an, a, a country inn that's kind of in this out of the way back roads location but the owners uh for their own diabolical reasons basically just kill everybody who stays there as a guest you know they they rob them they they poison them they stab them they do what they do and then they find a creative way to dispose of the body and so that that's the fun. setup <laughs> it does well, sound fun well, I, I mean that <laughs> it, it is it's it's it is it's it's, it's pretty twisted uh, fernandel one of the great french comic actors is the main showpiece here he plays a monk who hears the confession of the uh, the wife of the uh, the couple that owns this inn? She she feels a need to tell him the darker secrets that she's been keeping, you know, hidden within for all these years. But now he's of course sworn <laughs> he, he to can't silence. Tell anybody. But, but, but he knows. All right, I gotta watch this one tonight. It looks like yeah, uh, yeah. It's 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 quite something. So yeah, it would be fascinating to see if that one got his own standalone release well, it certainly would not have fit into this box set there but it's it's definitely worth checking out I, and it's a little bit closer because there are some elements where i could sort of see a a true foe or a godard just like oh come on you know these these old men let's give us a chance you know so you you you, you get a little bit of that taste of the the, the, the friction between the you know yet to emerge uh nouvelle vague as and the you know the the mainstream quality of 50s french cinema that they were rebelling against so yeah it's it's just kind of fascinating to see that that history developing as, as we watch these films well one thing to note i'm looking at it on filmstruck right now and it expires yeah. on june 22nd 2018 i don't I mean i don't know if that okay. means it only will be streaming for a little while if it's one of these that they just have for a bit if it means that maybe they'll release it sometime after that, I think. But, but if, I might be mistaken, but I think I saw some Studio Canal credit uh, stuff at the okay. beginning of that one. I better <laughs> so, really watch it tonight. Then I may never see yeah, it again. Well, <laughs> it, it's definitely you know it's it's you, you can see he's he's evolved even even the the image quality and the transfer is, is crisper and and more modern looking for a early 1950s film so definitely worth checking out if you want to track uh, claude otant lara uh even but even to finish up my comments on, on ingrid bergman as we kind of look forward to the next episode of the eclipse viewer uh it's going to be a lot of fun kind of viewing her roots as as a as an actor and and uh, uh sort of setting the stage of course they did the uh ingrid bergman uh documentary 
as a couple years ago now and some debates and questions of whether or not that should have been a standalone or all that we'll we'll set that aside and we'll we'll take a look at uh, Ms. Ingrid as she uh, established herself as one of the most absolutely iconic uh, female presences in all of cinematic history so I'm clearly and, and eagerly looking forward to that one I think it's going to be a fantastic addition to the series yeah I'm one who really enjoyed that documentary too and wanted to yeah, have access too. to these films so I'm glad to see them I haven't watched them yet and I, I don't know how many of them are available on Filmstruck I think a few of them are if not all of them I think I think there are a few others that are on Filmstruck that didn't hmm. make the box set. So I, I assume that, I mean, it's going to be, what is it, five or even six films? Six films. films. Six, right. So you might have two more episodes we'll have to be the, coming up. Yeah, the, the, the two-parter there. I, I, I think I might. I mean, I, I don't really want to whip through six films in, in that too too brisk of a pace there. So we'll we'll stretch things out a little bit. I think I'll, I'll call it right here. Sounds good. <laughs> All right. Well, this has been a great uh, reunion with you, Trevor. I know we've collaborate on other things too but it's really nice to get the eclipse viewer up and running again and looking forward to more so any last comments before we wrap it up nope just want to agree with you i'm glad that these are coming i mean it it may be that they'll keep coming one or two every year or every two years so i'll, I'll look forward to these saturday mornings chatting about films with you uh for for hopefully the the long future <laughs> Excellent. Well, it's been a fun time as always. So thank you, listeners. Look forward to your feedback. If you got any comments for us, uh, look for us on the Criterion Cast website. There's links for uh, both Trevor and myself. You can email us, leave your comments and all that. So thanks for listening in. We'll see you in a couple more months. Bye-bye. <laughs>